0: Thank you, choir. What a beautiful song, and what a great song we learned. Uh, Lord, have mercy. And I just want to say thank you to everyone for praying that God would be merciful to me over these course of the past three weeks. Um, I'm grateful that this is our church family. I'm grateful for your prayers, your encouragement. I'm grateful for our staff. What a great staff we have. Grateful for Tim preaching, grateful for Hunter not taking my parking spot these past three weeks. (laughs) Turn your Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Of course, I didn't get the news I was hoping for after the surgery. Uh, I I do have a doctor's appointment in Dallas on, I think, November 19th, 16th, 16th. I don't know any more than that. So I have another surgery in my future, and... When I know things, I'll let you know, because I know that you'll be praying, and I appreciate that. Second Samuel chapter 11. Have you ever sold something that you knew wasn't in the best condition? I mean, you knew there was something wrong with it, but you did everything you could to present it as perfect. Maybe something fell and broke and you put super glue on it and you just try to make it look bad. Or maybe you didn't sell it, maybe you bought something that someone else tricked you into. Maybe you knew your vehicle had a leak of some sort but you did everything you could do to try to clean it up so that when a prospective buyer would come, it looked okay. I've heard horror stories from people who uh, bought a home and the sellers failed to disclose certain issues they just covered up things and left the mess to the new owner like these are examples of intentional deceit but it's also true that in general human beings like to cover up things that we know are flawed or that we don't like isn't that why so much money is spent on cosmetics or cosmetic surgeries isn't that Why sometimes we put rugs or pictures or furniture in strategic locations? One of the undeniable facts of Scripture, which actually points to its divine origin, is that Scripture doesn't try to cover up the flaws of its main characters. If the Bible was a work merely of humans, then all the main characters would be flawless, right? There would be nothing wrong with them. They would be presented in the best possible light but that's not what we see in scripture the flaws of the main characters are on full display from adam and eve to abraham and sarah to the prophets to the apostles the only true hero of scripture is the son of god is jesus christ and he is presented as sinless because he is sinless he is perfect and when you think of the biggest sins in Scripture, what do you think about? Do you think about Adam and Eve and their disobedience to God there in the garden? Do you think of Judas's betrayal of Jesus? Do you think of Peter's denials of Christ? Look, these all rank really high, right? Today, we're going to look at a familiar account in Scripture the account of David and his great sin with Bathsheba, and then the cover-up that would happen following it. As Zach said earlier, up until now, what we've seen from David is all positive, right? He's the one who is chosen by God. He's the one who God declared was a man after his own heart. He is the victorious warrior, a man of great faith, and a man of great devotion to God. He's the one who shows steadfast, agape love To others. And in part, that's why this text is so shocking to us. That King David would fall in this manner shocks us, but it also warns us. It shows us that the words of Jeremiah 17 19 are, in fact, reality. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Beyond that, it ought to cause us to take Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 all the more seriously. If any man thinks he stand, let him take heed lest he fall. Now, just prior to that, the apostle Paul noted the sins of Israel and claimed that they were written down for us that we might learn from them. So friends, our goal today as we look to 2 Samuel chapter 11 is that we would learn from David's foolishness. If you will, please stand as we read 2 Samuel in chapter 11. 2 Samuel in chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord. And did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place that he knew were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger When you have finished telling, all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that there was shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Phebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also." So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had said to him, to tell him. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servant from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we turn our attention to this text, I pray that in our own lives, you would help us to move away from folly, to move away from sinfulness. Lord, I pray that we would learn to depend on you and trust you and that by your grace and by your spirit, we would be people who pursue righteousness. God, help us to learn this morning from David's foolishness. And we pray for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. And before we jump into the text this morning, I want to say a few words about guilt and blame in this passage. Many commentators pose a question that the text simply doesn't address or even speculate on. Some ask whether Bathsheba carries any guilt or blame in this situation. Others wonder whether Bathsheba was trying to be noticed. Some have even speculated that Bathsheba may have been breaking the norms of Hebrew modesty. And to such suggestions, I would assert that the biblical text must drive our conclusions. And the first piece of data that we come across in this text was the very specific reason for her bathing. Now listen, Generally, I'm in favor of people bathing regularly, right? Men, women, especially teenagers bathing regularly. But in verse 4, it clearly tells us that Bathsheba was bathing out of obedience to the laws of purification, which are described in Leviticus. So the biblical account here clarifies that Bathsheba was acting in holiness Second, at the conclusion of verse 11, we have this editorial statement about how the Lord saw this, how he felt about what was going on. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The focus of this chapter is squarely on David and David's sin. Well, some may say, well, it takes two to tango. Bathsheba could have stopped it. Well, I think that's foolish. I think that's a foolish statement. Verse 4 tells us that David sent messengers who took Bathsheba. There's no indication that Bathsheba knew what was going on. Furthermore, the language indicates that David, the king, is the initiator, the pursuer, and the force behind the entire encounter. And I think it's a common misunderstanding that Bathsheba was also bathing on her roof. Some would argue, well, she should have known. She should have known. She shouldn't have been out there. That's still immodest. But the text is clear. David was walking on his roof, and from his roof, David saw this beautiful woman who was bathing. It doesn't say that Bathsheba was out in the open bathing on her roof. David's house, of course, would have been the tallest houses as the king's palace, the king's house. And higher than all the other homes, giving him views of the city that were unique to him. And on this evening, David happens to look in Bathsheba's direction, and as the text indicates, he is playing the part of a voyeur. So, yes, hear me say this there is clearly a place for modesty in our lives, for both males and for females, and we need to take passages like Romans chapter 14, verse 21. Seriously, right? These passages say that we are to be careful not to cause other people to stumble. But as we look to this text this morning, I want us to see it for how God presents it to us. The king falls to temptation and the king commits great sin. Now, a few thoughts this morning when it comes to avoiding and dealing with sin. First, be active, not idle. Be active, not idle. Verse one gives us the context, and it said, in a continued battle against the Ammonites. Now, the Hebrew text actually doesn't say in the spring of the year, but it's probably a correct translation because this is the time of the year after the winter months when battles would be taking place. So Israel's army was out doing what Israel's army was supposed to do, but King David was back at home not doing what the king was supposed to be doing. Right? The king should have been leading his army. The king should have been out there doing what kings did. In fact, when Israel first clamored for a king, they stated that they wanted a king who would go judge them and go out before them and fight their battles like all the other nations, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 20. But this time, David wasn't fulfilling his kingly duties. He was being idle. We're not told why. Repeatedly in scripture the Bible warns against idleness. In Ephesians 5 we're called to be careful how we live making the best use of our time. In Hebrews chapter 6 we are called to live in such earnestness that we have the assurance of hope. In 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3 we're called to work and be active and not be busy bodies. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 14, it is the idol who are to be admonished. In First Timothy chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, idleness is associated with straying after Satan. Instead of living in idleness, we should be actively seeking to fulfill the responsibilities that God has given to us. Not saying that when we're active, we are immune to temptation and sin, but when our minds and our bodies are engaged in activities that are appropriate for the moment, that is an added defense against sin. Listen, temptations can be stronger when our minds and our bodies are not occupied and we are just sitting around. You know this from example. That's one reason why technology gets us in so much trouble. We waste so much time surfing the internet or scrolling on the phone. We're bound to come across something either intentionally or unintentionally that is inappropriate. I have a friend who maybe some 30 years ago was with another friend, lives in a different state, and they were just being idle, being teenage boys and messing around and they came across this website on how to make this homemade explosive. So they decided they were gonna make this homemade explosive and they did it in the house And the bottle got too hot and it blew up in their faces and they both had to go to the hospital because of this. Idleness leads to foolishness, friends. Here's the point. There's nothing wrong with leisure. When you have responsibilities, don't shrug them off. And be careful that your leisure isn't mindless opening you up to temptation. Second, run away from, not towards sin. Run away from, not towards sin. So there's David. He should have had this wartime mentality because it was wartime. But instead, he had a peacetime mentality. He was reclining on his couch when he should have been leading his army and he decides to go out for a stroll on his rooftop. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with going out a stroll on the rooftop. That was part of everyday life in this culture. And the text doesn't say that David was out looking for trouble, but it's clear that his guard was down. Text tells us that David looked out and he saw a beautiful woman who was bathing. Now listen, seeing a beautiful woman is not a sin. You look at my wife every day and that's not a sin okay? And while David should have been out in battle, it wasn't like he was at Club Jerusalem looking for trouble. He wasn't. That's not what was going on. On any given day in the normal course of life, you may come across an attractive person, and that's not a sin. Problems arise, though, friends, and we fail to act appropriately after the first sight. It's the second look, or the continual glare, or the positioning yourself for a better view that is sinful, We can't always control what our eyes see, but we can control what we do with our eyes after they see what they see. And that's the issue with David here. That's the issue. Rather than run from temptation, he ran to temptation, to sin. Instead of turning his head and reminding himself of his identity as the anointed king... As the God-chosen leader of his people, David chose to live life through a lesser identity of a king who could have whatever he wanted. David was acting in self-centeredness as if he answered to no one. The text doesn't tell us what was in his heart, but his actions clearly reveal what was in his heart. He began to inquire about the woman he saw. And then the text moves very quickly. He sent messengers. He took Bathsheba. He lay with her, and then she returned home. How did this happen? I mean, we're talking about God's anointed, the man after God's own heart. Well, along the way, we've read some of the danger signs. In 2 Samuel chapter 5 and 13 the text tells us that David accumulated both wives and concubines. We've read of his earthly power and his military vic- victories. The picture here is of an old man who is living in comfort and luxury without many cares. And he seems to have bought into the lie that he was bigger than life. He could do whatever he wanted to do. What a dangerous place that David was in. All the conditions were ripe for a spiritual slumber. Friends, just imagine you go to the beach and you look to the north or to the south and what you see are people laying on the beach, many people who are just sleeping there getting fried by the sun, right? But you look to the east or the west depending on what coast you're on and what do you see? You see people out in the ocean and they're active and they're playing. The people in the ocean aren't asleep They're not asleep because they can't be asleep, because they understand that they're active and they're in danger even if they're not careful. And this is the mindset that we have to adopt. We have to be alert. We need to learn from David's mistake. When we are confronted with temptation, we are to run the other way. We're to do something different. Don't keep going in the same direction. When you're tempted towards lust while watching TV or on the internet, internet, go do something different. Paul calls us to flee, 1 Corinthians 16, 6, 18, sexual immorality. We're tempted towards materialism or toward greed while shopping. Leave the store. Thank God for what you do have. Tempted towards discontent, remind yourself of God's blessing in your life. As we walk more closely with God, we learn to stay out of situations that may lead us to temptation. And when we are tempted, we need to know that God has set us free from the power of sin by the blood of Christ. And we don't have to choose sin. No, he's freed us to live in righteousness. Instead, friends, we're called to resist Satan, draw near to God. Further, it's not just that we move away from temptation, it's that we actively engage in activity that is pleasing and acceptable to God as a way to combat temptation. For instance, 2 Timothy 2.22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. So we run away from temptation, but we live or we seek to live righteously, Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who are called, who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Psalm 34, 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Friends, our mindset matters. If we go through life thinking that we're strong enough or immune to sin, then the enemy already has the upper hand. Believe it. But if we stay humble, and alert, and ready for temptation, living with a mindset of wartime mentality, then we are much better positioned to both recognize the temptation and to stand firm against it. And while we have God's spirit and God's grace in the battle, unfortunately, too often, we still fall to sin. And when we do, we must third, confess, not cover our sin confess, don't cover sin. The news came to David in verse five, I'm pregnant. In that moment, David had a choice to make. He could have done the right thing. He could have confessed his sin. He could have sought forgiveness. I mean, he knew who Bathsheba's husband was. In fact, Uriah was one of his own mighty men. We read in 2 Samuel 23, 29, 39. One of David's warriors, he's part of a special military unit. Beyond that, Bathsheba's father, Eliam, is listed as one of David's mighty men as well. Eliam is listed as the son of Ahithropel, an advisor of David who would later betray David. I wonder why he betrayed David. I wonder how this situation impacted his own life, his own heart. David had no excuses not to confess his sin and to seek forgiveness from God from Uriah and from Bathsheba's family but that's not what he did. In fact, so much of chapter 11 describes what David did to try to cover up his sin. Right, he brings Uriah off the battlefield and he tries to get Uriah to go lay with his wife, his wife for obvious reasons. But Uriah is presented as too disciplined and too righteous for that. Verse 11. Ultimately, David sends Uriah back to battle with a handwritten letter to give to Joab his own death warrant. Put him in battle. Put him against a valiant man and then draw back so that Uriah may die. And Joab listens and then sends the messenger back to David to tell him that he had done what he was called to do and that Uriah the Hittite is dead and David's response friends is cold and chilling verse 25 my paraphrase ah don't worry about it it happens in war recall that David had other people killed for slaying certain people before David thought that he could make it all go away marry the widow and voila but David clearly wasn't thinking. Sin has that effect on people. All David could think about was how not to be found out, which led to more sin and more sin. Lust, adultery, deception, murder. And he involved others in his sin as well. But at the end of the day, David could not hide his sin. God knew God saw it all. And David would suffer internally for his sin. He lost the experience of fellowship with God. He admitted that it was his bones that felt like they were wasting away under God's hand, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And it wasn't just internal suffering. It would be external suffering, too, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, how his sin had great consequence for his own life. And his own family. And friends, if we think clearly, then we would understand the importance of confessing our sin. It's the only way out of the sin trap. It's the path that leads us back to righteousness. James tells us that sin leads to death. And the only way out, friends, we learn in scripture is through confession. 1 John 1, 9 promises that if we confess our sin, then God will be faithful and he will cleanse us from our sin from our unrighteousness. Psalm 32 suggests that when we try to conceal our sin we suffer greatly, but when we confess it we experience God's forgiveness and God's steadfast love. Isn't that an amazing thing? We sin against a perfect and a holy God, and we deserve his wrath and we deserve his judgment, but we confess our sin. And we experience his steadfast love. His grace in our lives. So what is confession? We're going to look at that more closely next week. But for now, let's say that confession is agreeing with God that what we did was wrong. Confession involves admitting one's guilt. And in a theological sense, feeling remorse over what we have done because it is a sin against a holy God. Sin is always first and foremost against God, so confession is always first and foremost to God, but oftentimes we sin against others or involve others in our sin, so we ought to confess our sin to others as well. And friends, confession is not easy, but I think that by God's design, it's one of the most effective ways that any of us can battle sin in our lives, humbling ourselves and making ourselves accountable to others. Now, I want to close with two things. First, a word to those who find themselves in positions of authority. The concept of servant leadership is emphasized in scripture. Jesus contrasts his leadership, Mark chapter 10, With the leadership of the Gentiles, right? They seek to lord it over others and to demand their will and to push forth whatever they desire. But Jesus says it shouldn't be that way among you. You should serve others. You should serve. Because even the Son of Man came to serve and not be served. King David failed. Friends, he abused his authority. Rather than serve others and use his authority to build other people up, David used Bathsheba for his own pleasure. The Apostle Paul clarifies that authority should be used to build people up and not tear people down, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 10. Someone in this room needs to hear that this morning. If you find yourself in a place of authority and influence, steward that position well. and courage. And build others up. And finally, a word to all of us. Make it your aim to please God. The chapter ends with the narrator telling us God's view on the entire situation. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's not trick ourselves, friends. Pursuing sin and engaging in sinfulness never pleases the lord instead let's live lives that honor the lord by following his will and his ways and what is a life that pleases the lord it's a life that driven by faith in jesus pursues good works and considers others colossians chapter 1 verse 10 hebrews chapter 13 verse 16 Now, David's sin is not the end of the story. There is recovery, which we're going to see next week, but it involves being humbled. So this morning, I want to encourage you to be humble, to humble yourself before God's almighty hand. He might lift you up. Seek him. Confess sin to him. We all need God's grace because we have all sinned miserably, because we fail to follow God's word and God's will. Further, none of us is immune to sin, so this morning take heed lest you fall. Let's get serious when it comes to our fight against sin and our battle for holiness. And if we're honest, there are some in this room who are still dead in their trespasses and sin. They have no relationship with God. But this morning, you need to know that you can have relationship with God. If you will humble yourself, if you will confess your sin, and if you will cry out for forgiveness, putting your faith and your trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. If you have questions this morning about the gospel, about how you can know the hope of eternal life, during our time of invitation here in just a few moments, during this song, we would encourage you to come and let us share with you how you can have a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, the Son. Maybe you need to spend time right where you're at, or maybe even up here confessing sin in your life. Maybe going to others in this room and seeking forgiveness because you have sinned against them. Let's use this time to seek the Lord, to humble ourselves, and to battle sin in our lives. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, Sometimes your word is challenging to us. And today we've read of David and his great sin. Help us never to forget that your grace is greater. But Lord, we pray that we would be serious in our fight against sin. So help us to take the principles that we've discussed that come from your word to heart and to seek you and to live in such a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. Tim will be standing here to receive. If anyone has questions, please stand and sing.